liberal democracy has now reached the limits of many people's capacity to tolerate it. And it comes from viewing intolerance and illiberal attitudes as being the manifestations of an unevolved citizen, someone who hasn't quite completed their democratic citizenship. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to The Good Fight, the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. On June 19, 1967, Władysław Gomułka, the de facto leader of Poland, held a keynote speech at the Sixth Trade Union Congress. Since the Israeli aggression on the Arab countries was met with applause in Zionist circles of Jews, Polish citizens, I wish to announce the following. We have made no difficulties for Polish citizens of Jewish descent when they wish to move to Israel. We maintain that every Polish citizen should have only one fatherland, People's Poland, that those who feel these words are addressed to them, irrespective of their nationality, draw the proper conclusions. We do not want a fifth column to be created in our country. At the time, my grandparents, who were lifelong communists, having joined what they thought would be a fight for equality between different ethnic groups, were living in the heart of Poland. My mother was a music student at the local conservatory in Warsaw. My uncle was still in high school. Over the course of the next year, they were hounded by the government. My grandfather lost his job and was thrown out of the Communist Party. My mother, going to her music university one day, saw a big placard asking her and two of her Jewish classmates to leave for Israel. I never thought that this story of accusations of dual loyalty would ring so relevant to contemporary American politics. But make no mistake, that is the heart of what Ilhan Omar, the freshman congresswoman from Minnesota, has accused Jews of. Instead of making her disagreement with Israeli policies very clear, as have I, for example, in a recent interview in the Times of Israel. Instead of criticizing American foreign policy, she has done something else. She has insinuated three times at this point that Jews are motivated by a secret allegiance to another country, that they have dual loyalty that they are trying to force on her. And so I understand why many people might be reluctant to criticize her. There's no doubt that there's deep Islamophobia in big parts of the Republican Party and certainly in the words of our president, Donald Trump. It is important to be able to criticize Israel in a clear and consistent way. But what she has done is different. She has impugned the motives of her fellow citizens using some of the most long-standing and destructive anti-Semitic tropes, the very anti-Semitic tropes that have forced my parents and grandparents to flee the native country. And so those of us who stand for the ideals of liberal democracy, who stand for the ideals that citizens of any race and religion need to be allowed to be full citizens of their countries, 
cannot give us a pass. A standard which only applies so long as bad people don't invoke it for bad reasons is no standard at all. And if we're willing to give up on condemning anti-Semitism with clarity just because the person who has uttered anti-Semitic remarks so happens to also be attacked by Islamophobes, we are failing to stand up for our values. But now it is my great pleasure to welcome somebody to the program whose work I've been grappling with for these last years and who I should have had on the podcast a long time ago, Karen Stenner. Karen is a Princeton-educated political scientist who is also the director of Insight Analytics. She is the former scholar of the authoritarian predilection, the authoritarian personality trait, and how it might help to explain the rise of populism. The beginning of this conversation, as you will see, is a little technical. We're really trying to understand how she approaches this topic in social science. But I promise to you that it has a big payoff because it really has big implications, according to her, for what explains the rise of populism and how we should change, how we talk about the story of us, how we talk about the United States, about Australia, if we want to preserve liberal democracy. I'm not sure I agree with her. I think perhaps I disagree with her, but her arguments have made me think very, very hard. And I'm sure you will get a lot of reward out of following along with this conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Karen. Thank you, Yasha. Thank you for having me. Well, I've been wanting to have you on the show for a very long time, so I'm glad we made it work. And the reason is that, you know, since the beginning of all of us trying to grapple with the set of things going on around the world, trying to understand the nature of authoritarian populism, you've had a very distinctive voice in this debate. You have a particular social scientific approach which can help to shed a lot of light on what's going on. And it's based on your doctoral work in political science around the idea of the authoritarian personality. What's an authoritarian personality, Karen? Authoritarian personality or authoritarian predisposition, which I prefer, is an enduring individual level predisposition to favor authority and conformity over freedom and diversity. So it's an enduring predisposition. It's about 50% heritable. So studies of identical twins reared together and apart show that it's about 50% heritable and very substantially based in a personality dimension called openness to experience or lack of openness to experience more particularly, more accurately. So openness to experience is associated with a desire for simplicity and aversion to complexity, to novelty, to divergent experiences. And, you know, at the other end of the dimension, lack of openness to experience is a strong preference for simplicity and familiarity and an aversion to complexity. At the other end, openness to experience is just people who you know, are very excited by a wide range of, of life experiences and like to interact and mingle with people with, um, you know, lots of different attributes, like prefer social, moral, political diversity in their environment. And so it's a very enduring predisposition that feeds into what we call authoritarianism. We can perhaps have a conversation later about whether animals have authoritarian personality or character traits and how they differ from each other. I think I can hear your dogs in the background, but we'll pretend to ignore that. So when you're trying to measure this, I guess you're facing a kind of dilemma. Because if you look at things that are already deeply bound up with politics, then this is not very predictive. Of course, people who say, 
I like somebody who has an authoritarian personality to be at the helm of a state. And I think that anybody who's different should be kicked out of a country. The fact that they end up supporting an authoritarian politician is nearly baked into how you're measuring it, right? So then uh, my understanding is that you've gone in the other direction and said, we're going to look at people's preferences about diversity or similarity, about obedience or independence in a realm which is supposed to be as far away from politics as possible. Is, is that right? That's correct, because what you want is a measure that's sort of not full of proper nouns and not full of references to the objects, events and political actors of the day, because that then creates this hopeless tautology where the thing that you think you're trying to explain, which is support for authoritarian leaders and policies, is basically, as you said, baked into the measure of authoritarianism itself. So obviously they're going to be related. And that was a well-known problem with the original F scale. The work in uh, the authoritarian personality from the 1950s formulated a scale to measure authoritarianism that was full of specific references to, you know, people of other races and ethnicities, moral deviance, and so on. So instead, the strategy is to have what I call a bare bones measure of the predisposition itself, which we do, and this is not my invention, this has been a longstanding practice um, in the World Values Survey and the General Social Survey, for example, to measure various things by means of child-rearing values. Not that that has anything to do with reflecting either how you yourself were raised or how you're raising your own children. It's merely a low-level, unobtrusive way of tapping into fundamental values. So give us an example of a kind of choices that a respondent would be asked to respond to in order for us to figure out whether they have overtime character traits. So from memory, the World Values Survey or GSS wording goes something like, everybody thinks certain qualities are important in children. However, some are more important than others. Would you say it's more important that a child is obedient or thinks for himself? Is it more important that a child is curious or has respect for elders? Is it more important that et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Mm. So you have this pair of choices between something that sort of reflects a desire for individual freedom, complexity, diversity, and another sort of child-rearing attitude which affects other things which reflect sort of a preference for good manners, cleanliness, obedience, sticking to the rules, obeying your elders, respecting authority, those kinds of things. But they're all in reference to, you know, the behavior of children and relations between parents and children, which is kind of like an unobtrusive way of reflecting your idea of the appropriate relationship between collective authority and individual freedom. Yeah, and so I've seen some critiques of this, which I take it you think are unpersuasive because you would say the things that we're criticizing are a feature rather than a bug of my approach, right? When people say it's sort of weird to try and derive how people think about politics from, you know, the views about education, what, what do these things have to do with each other? Your answer would be, well, that's precisely the point. The point is that in this realm, which is not straightforwardly political, we can measure your basic personality instincts. And if we can then empirically show that they actually predict which party you vote for, we actually really know that there's something important here. I want to get to changes over time in a bit, but what about changes across different stages of age. I mean, listening to the measures you've talked about, I wouldn't be surprised if the average 20-year-old has fewer authoritarian personality traits than the average 70-year-old. That the average 70-year-old is more likely to say, you know what, I think it's important that people have respect for their elders, that they listen to the rules and so on and so forth. Is there this sort of general movement across people's life stages or is it pretty stable but across that 
Yeah, no, it is pretty stable. And it's, it's not very strongly associated in any data set I've ever looked at. And I've been doing this for about 20 years, not strongly associated with age, as opposed to things like status quo conservatism, the increasing rigidity and, you know, preference for familiarity and the status quo that people sometimes get. You see that move in a fairly linear way of age. But authoritarianism, if you're measuring it by these bare bones measures of predisposition, is fairly durable and stable. And how about interculturally? Is there some culture? cultures that put more emphasis on hierarchy and discipline and would therefore say, I want kids to respect the elders and other cultures which are more perhaps individualistic and independent-minded and where a higher share of people say, I want kids to be independent or do you see very similar results across countries? No, it definitely varies across cultures. So there's no question of that. It might not vary as much as you think, however, but it certainly varies across cultures. And we can speculate about what that has to do with. And you could range all the way from genetic inheritance up to, you know, particular kind of institutions and cultural structures, particular patterns of social learning within a society that affect your understanding of the appropriate relationship between the group and the individual. So there's certainly variation. And it might have to do with economic relations as well. Well, right. I mean, in a feudal society, it makes sense to emphasize obedience and loyalty more than in a sort of middle class individualistic society where in order to make good money, it helps to have a creative profession or something like that. Right. I mean, there's presumably yes. those kinds of economic background conditions which create incentives for different yes. forms of behavior, which will then be reflected in attitudes towards parenting and so on. One of the interesting things is that although levels of authoritarianism and levels of intolerance, which is the main thing we're trying to explain with our measures of authoritarianism, although those things vary significantly around the world, sort of levels of those things vary significantly around the world, areas which have low levels of authoritarianism and low levels of intolerance of difference, in those societies, it's often the case that authoritarianism has the most explanatory power. So distinguishing between levels of authoritarianism and the impact of authoritarianism, which is why the sort of rising sort of intolerance across the West took everybody surprise. But the fact is, if that intolerance of racial, moral, political difference is an unusual thing in your society, as it is in many of the advanced sort of diverse modern liberal democracies, then in those situations where you think of cultures where it's actually psychologically aberrant to be strongly authoritarian and strongly in favour of intolerance of difference. In those societies, intolerance gets driven to a much greater extent by predispositions like authoritarianism, because in other societies that are riddled with intolerance, it's more just a part of the social learning that everyone's absorbing. So authoritarianism has greater impact in some of the most, what you would think of as libertarian liberal democracies of the West. And so this is sort of some of the surprises that people had in regard to political developments in Scandinavia, in the Netherlands, and so on. On. When I try to understand whether or not you have authoritarian personality traits, you know, presumably there's going to be two determinants. One is sort of your actual personality. Are you just this sort of person who really doesn't like new experiences, who wants the world to be really simple and homogeneous, who likes the idea of authority and so on? That may be whether it's genetic, whether it's just whatever combination of influences which makes one sibling very different from another sibling. It's sort of who you are, right? And then presumably there's a whole set of learned social determinants, that if you grow up in a society that's very hierarchical and that really 
values obedience and that punishes people very strongly for outward signs of difference or resistance to authority, then you're going to most likely value those things more strongly than when you grow up in a really individualistic society. But doesn't that mean that perhaps actually the measure that you're constructing here doesn't entirely get at authoritarian character traits? Because it may be that you know, it is lumping together the person who really is an authoritarian, who really does say, I want everything to be homogeneous and so on, and this is sort of a deep driver of me, and somebody who's actually not particularly authoritarian, but who's simply going along with the attitudes of a majority, you know, because they've been taught to value obedience, they sort of say, sure, obedience is nice. But when you're actually thinking about personality, this person is pretty different. I think the thing is, if you're measuring authoritarianism by this very low-level predisposition, which is just reflecting your fundamental orientations towards, you know, letting the relationship between the child and the adult sort of reflect your attitudes towards the relationship between collective authority, you know, group authority, and the individual freedom within the society, what's the appropriate balance between those two things? And you, when you measure that in a very low-level way, it doesn't fit, vary to the same degree across societies as you might imagine with something that's very much focused on the manifest expressions of those things within a society. And then it still also remains the case that within a particular society, which, as you mentioned, has a particular set of social learning that's being absorbed by everyone within the society, and then your absorption of that and your reflection of those attitudes sort of is based upon your exposure to that social learning. Within societies, it will still be the case, holding all of that constant, obviously, that social learning, that authoritarianism will explain variations and levels of intolerance within that society. So within a society holding the culture constants, it's still the explanatory variable within that society. Oh, and it may be that the person who grows up in a society that really values discipline, who isn't strongly predisposed personally towards that kind of authoritarianism, may end up having more authoritarian personality traits than a person with similar sort of character predispositions who grew up in the United States, say, but they're still going to be less authoritarian than other members of a society who both grew up with that social conditioning and have a strong personality predispositions. Yes. And what you'll find varies more across diverse cultures is the manifest expressions of authoritarianism, which are racial and ethnic intolerance, moral intolerance and political intolerance. So the large point of measuring authoritarianism in this, what I call this very low level bare bones way, is so that you can distinguish between the predisposition and the attitudinal and behavioral manifestations of the predisposition and intolerance, because authoritarianism produces varying amounts of intolerance and it does so as a function of exposure to conditions of what I call normative threat. So basically intolerant behaviour is a function of the interaction between authoritarian predisposition and conditions of threat. And so those are the two things that must be present in order for you to get the behavioural manifestations of authoritarianism. Let me try and unpack that because I think now we're getting to the thing, we've sort of been doing a lot of preparatory work to get to the things that we're really interested in, right? Which is how can all of this help us explain things like Donald Trump? How can it help us explain mm -hmm. things like the rise of populism? And if I'm understanding you rightly, what you're basically saying is that, look, there are some people who have these authoritarian personality traits and others who don't. Mm-hmm. And the people who have these authoritarian personality traits are more likely to support authoritarian politics, are more likely, you know, if we know that you really value discipline over curiosity in your child rearing, it will actually tell us that you're more likely to support somebody 
like Donald Trump. Now, here's the obvious objection to it, which I understand you obviously have thought about and have a very good response to. But the obvious reaction to that is, well, these personality traits are pretty static, right? Americans 20 years ago didn't have such a different distribution of authoritarian or non-authoritarian personality traits or even views about child rearing. So how can something that's constant explain a big political change. If there was people with authoritarian predilections in the United States 20 years ago and there's people with authoritarian predilections in the United States today, how can this thing that hasn't changed help us understand the sudden rise of something like Donald Trump? And here my understanding is what you're saying, hey, this is where these moments of threat come in, that somebody with authoritarian predilections is going to behave very, very differently in moments when they feel secure and in moments when they feel like things are going just fine than in moments when they experience this kind of threat. Is that right? And if so, can you explain a little bit what the nature of this kind of threat is and when it is activated? This was exactly the puzzle that inspired me to originally begin working on authoritarianism and tolerance in the mid-1990s, is that people were saying, well, if you look in the aggregate at sort of collective manifestations of authoritarianism, you look over time and you see these levels of racial and ethnic violence, hate crimes, you know, punitive sentencing, you know, sort of restrictions on on moral freedom. You see these things rise and fall in the aggregate over time. How can that be possible if you're saying that these things are driven by this underlying, very stable and durable predisposition? And similarly, people would say, you know, by any measure of authoritarianism we currently have, you can take this measure, score some people as high and low authoritarian, and then a observe their behaviour in different situations. In some situations, their behaviour will be clearly distinct and in other situations, you'll be hardly able to tell the difference between the authoritarians and the non-authoritarians. So, you know, behaviour that isn't consistent across time led people to believe that, you know, it can't possibly be an enduring personality. But both of those things, the rise and fall in the aggregate of sort of manifestations of intolerance over time, which is consistently observed, and also sort of the varying behaviour of individuals in different situations, Both of those things are easily accommodated by what I described to you previously, which is that intolerance itself, the attitudinal and behavioural manifestations of intolerance, are a function of the interaction between the person and the situation, which is to say between authoritarian predisposition and the conditions in which one finds oneself. And in particular, the critical conditions, and this has been the bulk of my work over the last two decades, is identifying what those aggravating conditions are that, as I describe it, activate authoritarian predispositions and increase the returns to authoritarianism, if you like, increase the behavioural manifestations you get for a certain level of authoritarianism. And those are what I have described for some time now as normative threat. A normative threat is a very particular thing. If you take how I've described authoritarianism to you, people who are really unusually invested in what I call oneness and sameness versus freedom and diversity, who are really heavily invested, sort of, I think of them as very groupy. There's a lot of groupiness and they're very invested in collective and collective authority. You know, they have this particular idea of the appropriate relationship between those things. So what should be the most threatening to that kind of people is anything that threatens the oneness and sameness of us. So however they draw the boundaries of us, things which threaten the oneness and sameness of us are critically, you know, sort of aggravating to them. So call that normative threat and summarising very broadly, it encompasses two main elements, perceptions of belief, diversity, lack of consensus or conformity, you know, nobody agrees on anything anymore, moral decay, we've lost the things that made us great, sort of loss of identity, you know, Mm -hmm, that's where mm -hmm. racial and ethnic things can come from, loss of sense of belonging. So it's kind of like a loss of 
consensus and then a sort of a loss of authority. So, my neighborhood doesn't feel like my neighborhood anymore, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't feel right to me anymore and we've lost the things that made us great. So that's one part of it, sort of I describe in very general terms as a lack of consensus or a lack of conformity. And the other is loss of confidence in leaders and institutions. So, you know, mm. in diverse and complex modern societies, in the absence of racial and ethnic homogeneity, the things that make us and us are shared authority and shared norms and values. So perceived deterioration of those two things, i.e. loss of confidence in leaders and institutions, which is your shared authority, or perceptions of belief, diversity, and loss of consensus, you know, sort of shared rules, shared authority, those are the two things that if those things seem to be under threat, or if, in a more basic sense, there's racial and ethnic threats perceived to the integrity, status, cohesion, etc., of your group, however you're defining us, if there's threats to any of those things, they are what I call normative threats, activate authoritarian predispositions, which otherwise remain latent and produce no behaviour of any alarm to anybody, activate those predispositions and increase their manifestation in sort of attitudinal and behavioural sort of things that we recognise as classic intolerance of difference. And those have three main components, racial and ethnic intolerance, political intolerance and moral intolerance. So racial and ethnic intolerance obviously describes attitudes towards, you know, uh, domestic, if you like, racial and ethnic minorities, uh, religious minorities, as well as attitudes towards people who are trying to come into your country who are of different skin colour, different faiths, etc. So all encompassed under this rubric of racial or ethnic intolerance. Political intolerance is, you know, all the, the things around support for democracy, wanting to suppress dissent, you know, wanting to control who people can talk to, you know, restrictions on the media, censorship and the like. Hmm. And then moral intolerance, attitudes towards other people's moral choices in regard to reproductive freedom, sexual behaviour, all of those kinds of sort of moral domains where these kinds of people think that it's the business of the state to have their nose in other people's moral choices. So that's very much a part of this as well. So that was incredibly helpful and it was a lot. So let me try and see whether I understand what you just said. Caricaturing a little bit, there's one world in which people feel like, I recognize the world around me. There's a secure place for people like me. There's a certain kind of political hierarchy with political leaders at the top, and I can trust them to be looking out for my interests. So in that world, normative threat would be relatively low. And as a result, uh, you already have a range of people with different extent of authoritarian predilections. Some of them raise their children saying, go out and be curious. And others say, no, you have to respect your elders and be obedient and so on. But their political behavior, their attitude towards minorities and so on may actually be very similar because none of them feel threatened. And so whether or not you have these authoritarian predilections doesn't actually particularly matter to the politics or even the sort of cultural social life of that moment. That's correct. Now we go into the second world. And in the second world, suddenly a lot of people feel like everything is changing around me. I find that a little disorienting. Perhaps my status is threatened or the status of my group within the society is threatened. Certain advantages I used to have are no longer there. I don't really trust the institutions. I don't trust the politicians. They're supposed to look after me and I'm not sure that they're really that interested in me. And in this situation, you're saying 
the thing that was sort of the sleeping dog earlier suddenly becomes really important. If you basically are open to new experiences and you don't have these overtime predilections, you say, well, you know, things are changing a lot, but I like some of the new people who are coming into my neighborhood and, you know, I feel like I'll be able to find my place in the world of the future, and so I'm good. And then there's other people with these overtime predilections who suddenly look around and say, hang on a second, what's going on around here? This is not okay. I need to shut it all down. I need to make sure that the change stops. I need to make sure that these minorities shut up. I need to make sure that the world is put in order again. And there, this sort of authoritarian personality can translate into authoritarian political behavior, support for somebody who uh, promises to recreate the great world that you have lost. Is that a caricature or does, is that sort of recognizably what you're arguing? Well, it is a caricature, obviously, but it's fairly close to the truth. The only thing that I would add is what you've described is the very most basic form of normative threat. It's the really primitive stuff, right? Which is there's people who look different from me and they smell different from me and they cook different things and they speak a different language and they're invading my world, right, you know, and I'm fearful of the boundaries of us and how I'm going to protect the cohesion and integrity and status of us. So that's the most primitive form of that. But it doesn't have to be hordes of immigrants and it doesn't have to be fears about domestic minorities. It can be something as simple as loss of confidence in leaders and institutions, although obviously those things can be related when elites are pursuing immigration policies that, that you know, are counter to the way in which you think life ought to be organised. Obviously, that's threatening. But even independent of that, you can still have separate from issues having to do with immigration and so forth, which is what's plaguing everyone's sort of discourse at the moment. Just simple loss of confidence in leaders and institutions, A, and B, loss of perceptions of belief diversity. So if I had to sort of summarise it in a really, you know, simple few sentences, you have to have some source of us. For people who are very groupy and want us and are very heavily invested in the collective and get a strong sense of identity and meaning and belonging from being part of a collective, then the things that threaten us are threatening and produce these sort of, these are, you can think of these as defensive behaviours. Racial, moral and political intolerance are the defensive behaviours that are manifested when people think that us is under threat, essentially. But us can be under threat from the so-called invasion of the brown people coming from overseas and invading your culture and so forth, or it can be simply, you know, malfeasance, exposure of scandals and corruption among political leaders, loss of confidence in institutions, and as I mentioned before, perceptions of belief uh, diversity are very, very powerful activators of authoritarianism. So it's almost like if I'm summarising you need some means of making an us. And if you have a lot of racial and ethnic diversity, then you need some moral community, if you like. You have to have shared values and belief and shared respect for a particular set of leaders and institutions. And so what we've experienced in the West over time is not merely growth of asylum-seeking and influx of refugees and more liberal immigration policies, but also a very significant decline in trust and confidence in leaders and institutions. And also social media and 
mainstream media amplification of conflict and dissent. So if you think about the two things I said were critical, apart from the primitive assault of these brown people are coming to invade mine, is loss of confidence in leaders and loss of confidence in shared values. So those are the things that make us and us in diverse and complex modern societies. And there has to be something for people who really need to belong to an us and have a very strong sense of the collective. There has to be something that makes us. And if it's not shared race and ethnicity, then you have to provide something in its place, which is why one of the things I'm often arguing is that we need to pay attention much more to common and unifying beliefs and rituals. I love this term assiness. I don't know if you just coined it or whether you use it often, but it's a, it's, it's a wonderful way of thinking about this. If you're saying that this authoritarian set of predilections helps explain the rise of populism around the world, because once it gets activated because of normative threat, it really determines how people vote. And it can explain how people who might have voted for Mitt Romney four years ago or six years ago now voted for Donald Trump two years ago. Um, it, it helps make a lot of sense of that. Um, the one question I have is why then it is that Uh, the normative threat seems to have risen in so many countries around the world at the same time. I mean, if you're experiencing the rise of overtime populism in the United States and in Germany and in France and in Hungary and in India and in Brazil, all at the same time, and this is importantly explained by these authoritarian personality traits which are activated by normative threat, then why is it that suddenly citizens in all of these countries are experiencing normative threat at the same time? The way I've normally described it is that Liberal democracy has now reached the limits of many people's capacity to tolerate it. And it comes from viewing intolerance and illiberal attitudes as being the manifestations of an unevolved citizen, someone who hasn't quite completed their democratic citizenship, instead of somebody who's born with a particular predisposition that's always going to be manifest. But I think that what's happened is everyone expected that all people would sort of evolve along this path towards greater tolerance and respect for difference and greater support for democracy, when in fact democracy reaches a point where it's now exceeding a very substantial chunk of the population's capacity to tolerate it. What does that mean? What determines this threshold and why has democracy moved beyond it? In terms of the public hearing of dissent, tolerance for moral deviance, if you like, and not making that in a pejorative sense, but just sort of a wider range of permissiveness around the behaviours that people are allowed to tolerate and what's acceptable in the public domain, for example. Uh, high tolerance for dissent, you know, a cacophony of voices across social media, lots of open conflict and disrespect for authority, all of those kinds of things. So things which we think of as part of living in a normal, vibrant, healthy liberal democracy at a certain point become more than a certain proportion of the population, which is, you know, roughly speaking, obviously I've said it varies around the world, around about a third of the population in most Western societies. So they're living in an environment that's not conducive to them living a happy life, essentially. And, and sort of hmm. we've hit that point with the, our interconnectedness and our knowledge of everything that's going on around the world and sort of fear-mongering by political elites, for example, for their own political purposes. All of those things are converging and basically activating the predispositions of a very substantial chunk of the population. And the reason why that seemed alarming and seems like it comes out of the blue is, as we described, the behavior is a result of the interaction between the predisposition and the situation in which the person finds themselves. So they've always had their predisposition and it's sitting there latent, but now it's being activated and aggravated by these conditions of normative threat. So this is fascinating to me, and I'm trying to think of what the implications are. I mean, if what you're saying is 
as soon as you have a certain amount of cacophony in your society, a certain amount of change and so on, the intolerance of about a third of the population is going to be uh, triggered. And so I guess there's two solutions. I mean, one is to somehow find a way of building a permanent coalition against that third of people and ensuring that the political system can weather that, which seems like a very difficult project. And the other is to make society, make democracy less demanding of them by becoming more moralistic, by becoming more conservative, by becoming, ironically, in certain ways, more authoritarian. You know, that's something that doesn't play into my predilections and which might be dangerous to realize as well. So how do you think about the implications of this for how people who care about democracy, who want to stabilize democracy, should act? I think everyone needs to think about what's the outcomes that we're trying to accomplish. And if your goal is to ensure the survival and health of liberal democracy and protect the rights and freedoms of vulnerable communities within our societies, then you have to think empirically about democracy. You can't be thinking normatively about it, about how people should be behaving and how things ought to be. But given that we have this distribution of, you know, a normal distribution of preferences and inclinations within humanity, how are we going to manage that in a way that basically protects liberal democracy and ensures freedoms. So what would that look like? I mean, if you take that forward seriously and you try to say, okay, so we need to create a society in which that third of people with somewhat authoritarian predilections feels comfortable. They don't feel the strength of normative threat they do at the moment. But at the same time, part of the goal that you set out, which I agree with, is a liberal democracy which entails protection for the rights of sexual and ethnic and other minorities. So is there a way of squaring that circle? Is there a way of ensuring that we protect the rights of vulnerable people within our society while also making sure that uh, that third of the population with these authoritarian predilections feels sufficiently heard not to blow up the system? So one way to think about it, which I normally find helpful, is if it's not possible to change people's intolerance of difference. And that's my principal assertion, right? So the, the reason why you say that liberal democracy has to back off in a certain sense, and I'll explain what I mean by that uh, in a moment, if you think that we need to protect racial and ethnic and you know, sort of moral deviance within your society, and, and obviously you and I both agree that that's what we're aiming for, then you need to make it possible for people who are intrinsically, innately, in a durable sense, just nothing they can do about it, intolerant of difference. You have to make it possible for them to live in peace in these kinds of societies. And you do that not so much by suppressing actual difference, by suppressing the appearance of difference. And that's much less sinister than it sounds and has to do with the sort of point I was trying to make earlier is this, if you have a great deal of racial and ethnic and moral diversity within a society, you have to have some other sources of arsiness. That, bringing back that label again. Mm. You have to have a lot more shared and unifying beliefs, rituals, practices, institutions, processes, etc. One of the things that's problematic in the US in particular is people live fairly separate lives. You know, people of different sort of races, ethnicities, classes, and so forth go to different schools and live in different neighbors and lead pretty much separate lives. And there's not a lot of usiness. There's not a lot of shared sense of who we are that unites all of the sort of diversity fragments of society, or at least not to the same degree as you had previously. And then you have social media basically amplifying the cacophony of diversity and dissent. And those kinds of things are the kinds of things that aggravate people who are trying to live within these societies and probably in many cases earnestly trying to be as tolerant as they can and to live comfortably within those societies. And we have to make it possible for that to happen, not in a normative sense, but just in an empirical sense, is if you want this to work out well, if you want liberal democracy to be sustained in the 
long term and to continue to provide all the freedoms we treasure, then you have to think about empirically what are the conditions that make that more likely. And so, you know, you're Australian, obviously, but you know the United States very well. You've spent many years here. You know, what would that look like? I mean, how can the United States up its quota of assiness? I know some people who like the idea of some kind of either voluntary or to some extent compulsory sort of year of public service in which you would be thrown together with people from different parts of the country, perhaps different socioeconomic status, different demography than you might normally experience if, say, you come from a very homogeneous state like Maine or something like that. I mean, would that help to create that kind of assiness? Uh, it always strikes me as slightly unrealistic that we'll suddenly all give a year of our lives to the scheme and it'll have this very lasting difference for our lives. But it's one of the few non-coercive or semi-coercive things I can think of that might play this role. I mean, there isn't anybody who can create that assiness. Is there? The president can't sign a declaration tomorrow and suddenly we have a lot more assiness in this country. Uh, certainly this president is not likely to, but any president. Is that a feasible path of escape? I think there's a whole range of, you know, measures that we might undertake, and some of them are obviously long-term and more difficult and expensive to accomplish. But I think a really important thing, and certainly I think this is something that's helpful in Australia, is it's more likely that people live in similar kinds of neighbourhoods. We don't have the same degree of income inequality. We don't seem to have the same degree of class and status sort of separation where people are leading these entirely different lives. I think schools and living together are the ways in which people get to know each other in ways that make you understand these people are very much like me and we're all part of the same unified whole. So more institutions and processes, in some ways that means in the end more commitment to health and education and welfare measures in a social democratic kind of sense of creating an us by ensuring that people live more of their lives together and are able to access the same quality of services irrespective of you know the, the family into which they're born. I think some of those things really matter. I agree with a lot of those things certainly my normative commitments to them are the same. But I guess if you're talking about this in a very hard-nosed empirical sense, I'm a little skeptical. So for example, when you take schooling, I think one of the great injustices of the United States is the deeply socially stratified and racially segregated public school system we have. Mm -hmm. The fact that it's particular school districts which decide the level of funding, and that depends obviously on how affluent a neighborhood it is, and so you get these vast disparities in the quality and the composition of schools and school bodies. is something which doesn't quite exist to the same extent in most other developed liberal democracies. Intolerable. And that then tracks as well to unequal distribution of a whole range of things in life. Of course, which has huge consequences for people's life chances and so on. Now, I agree with you that if we disrupt that, then we might have more assiness in one kind of sense, which is to say that people will know each other better across uh, racial and socioeconomic lines and so on. But wouldn't it actually increase normative threat in a very significant way as well? I mean, those groups that are saying... I don't like change, I don't like difference, I kind of want to be within my own community. Isn't the school within the school district, within the neighborhood, precisely because it is far too segregated and so on, one of the things that allows them to say, well, here we have a form of assiness and that's a kind of bulwark against the wider society, which makes me sort of have a corner of this world where I'm happy to live in. Wouldn't that actually increase normative threat according to the terms of your fury for those people and make them even more likely to say everything's changing and my status advantage is being taken away from me and now it's really time to fight this? 
I think it's a really good question, and one of the reasons why we don't have a good answer to it is we have such patchy and unreliable findings in regard to the contact hypothesis in psychology. You know, so the replicability crisis in psychology, you know, bears upon this: is that we don't really have a very clear sense of the general regularities, whether contact with people who are racially and ethnically, morally, politically different from yourself eases intolerance or aggravates it, because a we don't study it; it's kind of a taboo topic, and b to the extent that we do, it's studied in lots of different contexts with lots of different ways of bringing together, and we don't have good replicated findings about what the impact of those things. And it varies upon the relative status of the people and all kinds of things that we don't. You know, more in Commons doing a lot of work, as you know, with bringing people together in community dinners and those kinds of things. And, and I think my general sense from the data that I see, and again, this is based on a lot of varying findings, is that there are ways in which you can bring together people which decreases normative threat and there are ways in which it increases normative threat. And some of that has to do with the larger policy context in which that's taking place, those kinds of efforts are taking place, which has to be supported by, and here's where I become unpopular and heretical, is has to be supported by strong forces working in favour of assimilation and integration. So one part of giving up this dream that everyone's capable of evolving into a perfect liberal democratic citizen is a admitting that people need to feel commonality. A community requires community, if you like, is the simplest way of thinking about it. You have to have things that people share. And one of the important things, I think, is shared language. And obviously, it's too big a pot to just put under that label, but shared culture. And so there's lots of things that policy settings can do to increase assimilation and integration. I think Australia does a pretty good job of choosing migrants and sending them to places in the country where they're going to be welcome and where they'll fit in well with what's going on in that spot and providing a great deal of resources to support, you know, an enormous amount of resources to support their successful assimilation and integration into communities. So, and so what does that look like? What does the selection element of this look like and what does the supporting integration element look like? It's going to sound corny, but it's as simple as this, is the Australian government seems to implement a policy that, and I'm not behind the scenes with policymakers, but it seems to be very much a case of, you know, Australia has this problem, there's large parts of the country that are not settled and, and don't have sort of uh, the, the natural resources and the <laughs> rainfall and whatever to allow communities to be, you know, strong, and the, you know, the industries to allow communities to survive and communities are dying and losing their children and people moving away. So there's all sorts of places in the country where people welcome newcomers, and particularly if they have skills and interests that are congruent with the agriculture or sort of industries that are prevalent in that area. And I'm thinking of an example for Australia of Syrian refugees which has been sort of fairly successfully implemented here by basically sending uh, groups of, of refugees to places where they're likely to be very welcome, and they are, and where they contribute to what are the sort of the interests and emphases and industries of, of that region. Interesting. And so sort of generalizing from that, what would you recommend to politicians in Europe? What would you recommend to, say, the frontrunners for the Democratic presidential nomination in 2020? If they take your research seriously, what should they be putting on the policy agenda and what should they change their mind about? 
Well, I think the main thing and the easiest way to summarize it is instead of talking endlessly about how wonderful difference is and how we should all appreciate and respect difference, which only serves in general to aggravate authoritarians, if you want to protect difference, the best way to do that is to talk on and on about oneness and sameness, how we're really all the same, the things that bring us together are, you know, bigger and more important and more enduring than the things that separate us, to not sort of play into identity politics, to not be talking about particularistic ethnic and racial conflicts, but simply to be talking about the things that everybody has in common and the things that are going to be done in general for the community as a whole. So basically the language has to become the language of unity and consensus and oneness and sameness instead of what people try to do to support difference usually is talk on and on about difference and applaud the value of difference. And so empirically it's true. We might wish for a different kind of world, but it's empirically true that difference is best protected by sameness, that we do the best job of helping the people within our communities who are inherently intolerant of difference to actually tolerate difference by either presenting them with less difference or persuading them that they're confronting less difference, changing the boundaries of us. Um, and there's all kinds of things that we can do along those lines or decreasing their perceptions of normative threat. And so those are the main sort of avenues that you can pursue. So there's different ways of interpreting that. And I just want to pass that out a little bit as we sort of end this conversation. You know, so one approach is to say, look, we love difference and diversity and what makes America great or any other country great is, you know, how different people are from each other and we're always going to stay different from each other. And I'm sort of the presidential candidate, for example, that represents that. And you're saying that's not the right approach. Now, there's two different ways of going from there. One is what I think a lot of 2020 Democratic candidates are actually doing. I think what Kamala Harris is doing in a certain way, what Beto O'Rourke is doing in a certain way, and a bunch of the others as well, which is to say, look, we are a diverse country. We're a country with people from all over the world, with people of different skin color and different religion. But actually, at heart, we have more in common with each other than what divides us. At key moments of our history, we have come together across these lines in order to fight for justice. When we think about what we want for our children or grandchildren, we all have the same fears and the same aspirations, right? So that's the sort of middle path. And then the third path is not even to sort of acknowledge that diversity, not to lead to that diversity at all, and just speak in sort of neutral terms about groups, just speak about Americans and not really mention groups at all. Where on this sort of scale would you fall? Is it that sort of second set of things that I talked about, or is it the third set of things that I've talked about? I kind of feel based upon, you know, experimental manipulations that I've used in the past that I would have thought and hoped that it was going to be your second strategy. You know, we all have the same fears and aspirations. I'm increasingly of the opinion that it's really more about not even basically talking about the complexities of living in a diverse society, but how we're really all the same. You know, you've had similar ideas, you know, this very strong sense of civic and inclusive nationalism, you know, that there's an us and there's, here's the story of us. It's a shared story. We're all part of it. You know, if you think about authoritarians as people who are very groupy, very ussy, have very strong sense of their belonging and, and identity, just sort of belonging in this group and their identity as part of this group. And then all of the things that are negative from everyone else that flow from that ussiness are a function of their excessive investment in and dedication to protecting us. And those are not bad qualities, but their implications for other people are actually turning out poorly. But what you can do is take that ussiness, which in many circumstances produces good outcomes, certainly if you're inside the boundaries of us, you can actually change the boundaries of us so that all of that obsessive attention and defensiveness and concern and care for us actually then gets lavished on a 
new and larger sort of in-group. And there's all kinds of ways that you can do that. And that's some of the more promising avenues that I've been pursuing lately. So that's a fascinating point, And it's going to make me think a lot because I think my instinct would have been different on that. And perhaps when I was writing about inclusive patriotism in my book, For People Versus Democracy, or when I think about it, usually I slightly conflated these two things, right? So inclusive patriotism, inclusive nationalism can mean in one sense that we obviously don't exclude people, that we treat people the same regardless of the origin of a color of the skin, where we stand up to discrimination and structural injustice. That's one part of it which distinguishes it from authoritarian forms of patriotism and nationalism. The other question is, in the inclusively patriotic appeal, to what extent are you emphasizing the fact that various groups are included in it? And there my instinct was to emphasize it, in fact. One of the things I quote in my book is a speech that Emmanuel Macron gave in the uh, campaign for the presidency in Marseille, in which he says, I look into the audience and I see all of these people from different parts of the world. This is a city of 2,000 years of immigration. I see people who stem from the Ivory Coast and from Morocco and from Italy and from Poland. But what do I see? I see the people of Marseille. What do I see? I see the people of France. And that to me was a great example of inclusive patriotism. Now, what you're saying is, you know what, it would be better if you looked at the audience and you didn't emphasize the different origins of them, because even doing that is going to make it hard for the one third of a population that's authoritarian to see themselves in it, that actually the way to expand the boundaries of a nation in an inclusive way is not to draw attention to the fact that you're doing that. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's more the story becomes more like a modest acknowledgement that we come from many different things, but here's the story of Australia and this is what it means to be Australian now or this is what it means to be American now. And you have a shared narrative and a shared sort of, you know, you're sharing a culture, you're sharing a narrative about how you got there, you're sharing a sense of what's great about us. So allowing people to take pride in things which are stereotypically associated with us and making that into the story for everybody. So my point is that you can't change people's predispositions. They're going to be intolerant of difference. You can't make them tolerant. You can only make them perceive that they're confronting less difference. You're not going to make them less ussy. You could only change the boundaries of us. So you get to that point and you accept that, even though that makes you a heretic in modern thinking. You get to that point when you acknowledge that these things are very deeply innate very difficult to shift. Uh, you can educate people till you're blue in the face and it's not going to shift most people on any of these fundamentals. So these are the only things that you have to work with. And so my major point would be instead of thinking about the negative outcomes of authoritarianism and thinking about, you know, crazy people flipping the finger and beating up the press at MAGA rallies, which is the extreme, think about something more like your elderly neighbour who wants to live in a place where he understands the language and understands who his neighbours are and knows what to expect of them and, and is able to trust them. Think of more of that kind of person and think about helping that kind of person live at peace in the society that we've now created for them. And lots of people are angered by that kind of position because you say, well, you're placing the responsibility for integration and assimilation on the different among us and you're insisting that they become less different in order to integrate. And I always just point out this has never been a normative quest 
for me, this is simply empirical. It's the science of liberal democracy rather than the religion of democracy. And it's like, what is it actually going to take to produce the outcomes which we all want, which is peace, harmony, prosperity, stability, etc. And, you know, that's just an empirical question. What's most likely to create that? And in my impression, after two decades of studying this and lots of sort of manipulation with different kind of strategies and campaigns is that the best way to do that is to create a much stronger story of us that everybody can share and to take the things that are normally problematic for the rest of us in authoritarian predisposition and make them work for you. So if authoritarians are unusually groupy and ussy, then you change the boundaries of us. And so you take what they already have, which is a great deal of care and concern for protecting the integrity, status and cohesion of us. You take that and try and make that work for you instead of this futile attempt to turn people into something they can't possibly be by virtue of the fact that these predispositions are deeply innate. Karen, you know, one of the things I love about this podcast is that it makes me think. And I have to say, this conversation made me think and perhaps fear a little bit more than usual. I don't want to agree with you, to be entirely frank, but I will be thinking a lot about your arguments and trying to figure out whether I have to agree with them in the next weeks and months. So thanks for challenging me and thanks for challenging all of the listeners. And thanks for the important work you do. Thank you, Yasha. I was really appreciate you having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter, go old-fashioned for a moment and buy a banner ad to display on your favorite website. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.